Okay, this is Ken Butcher. I'm here with the middle of the air at the Barnes & Noble bookstore in Biltmore Park. And today we got John Decker with us, golfer, teacher, and now writer. He's written a book called the Golf is My Life. And I'm going to start out by just asking you to tell us a little bit about the book, John. Thank you, Kenneth. I pre- appreciate you having me on your show. Um, the book is, um, is, is a, it is a golf book, but it's a book... Uh, that I would classify more as a Christian book. Um, it starts out, each chapter starts out with Scripture. Uh, the first part of it, uh, it would usually be a life story, uh, and then I intertwine golf stories into it as well. So you get the combination of both both the golf side and the life side, uh, but it's all based around the Scripture itself. Okay, that sounds interesting. Um, so who or for whom would you say the book is written? Who's the intended audience? I think, you know, if you look at um, Christians themselves, I think Christians are going to love the book. Uh, You do not have to be a golfer uh, to love the book, and you do not have to be a Christian um, to to love the book. If you're a golfer and you're you're not a Christian, I think there's a lot of great stories about Seve Ballesteros and Tiger Woods and Arnold Palmer. Uh, I think that that are very interesting. If you are a Christian and you do not play golf, um, I think that you can get a lot from the book as well with the life stories in the scripture. If you are a Christian and a golfer, it's a home run. I think that that is the combination that that you, you're going to fall in love with the book itself. And and the feedback I've gotten, uh, that's pretty much what the people have said who who have read the book. So when when you came up with, I, I was in, interested when I read about the book before I saw it and saw that you used some Bible verses. The Bible verse that came to my mind about my personal golf game was seek and ye shall find, because I spent a lot of time in the rough. But how, how did that work for you in the writing process? Or, you know, did you have an experience that brought a uh, particular passage to mind? Or was it the other way around? You had a passage and it reminded you about something that happened to you. You know, I, I would pray about it. Um, every time I would, I have a story that I knew the story was there, but I didn't know what scripture. And I would go through, and I would just start looking through scripture, and I would pray about it, and I would find something that uh, that really resonated with me. Um, I usually would would gravitate around things that dealt with light, because in the in the um, book itself, I talk about a supernatural experience where where God um, actually um, were spoke to me and where I actually stood in, in, in front of Jesus and actually, um, you know, taught, he actually talked to me in the book or in the, uh, in the dream that I had. Uh, this was all in a, in a dream uh, when I had in high school, and it's in, uh, outlined in the book itself. Let me ask you this. I, that's kind of getting us into my next question, which is how you came to write the book in the first place. And tell us a little bit about the process. You, you already touched on it a little, little bit there, but what was your writing process like? Well, first of all, I never wanted to be a writer. I always, my dream as a child was to be a PGA Tour player. And it wasn't until I became a teacher. I started teaching in Orlando, 
And when I became a teacher, stories just started forming in my mind. And I didn't know where they were coming from. Um, but I was like, wow, these are really interesting. These are stories about my life and the people that have come into my life. And some of the stories were in my mind for about 20 years. After 10 years of teaching, I went to my boss in Florida. His name is Fred Griffin. He's a top 100 teacher, and he's a strong Christian. I said, Fred, I think God wants me to write a book. And so um, he said, well, you'll know when the time is right. And I had to hit rock bottom in my life to know that was when the time was. That's when I started writing the book because I could delve into my heart and soul and pour everything into the book. So originally the book was just going to be called Golf is My Life. And then when I hit rock bottom and I rededicated my my life to Jesus Christ, when I did that, that's when glorifying God through the game, uh, that's when the subtitle came to mind. And it just came to me. uh, I was talking to my editor, Pete McDaniel, and um, after we had been working together for about a year, and I finally came up with the subtitle, and he said, I like it. And so that's how we came up with the title, and that's how the whole process really got started. Okay, so tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, we have a lot of writers that listen to this podcast, so tell me a little bit about the structure of the book and how you came up with the structure of the book. Um, is it like a typical memoir structure? Uh, did you look at other memoirs to get sort of an idea, or uh, did you just jump into the process? I, I didn't. I can honestly say I did no homework on this. Um, I literally felt like in my mind the stories were all in my mind. I actually wrote chapter seventeen first. That was the first chapter I wrote. It's called My Dream. Then I went to chapter one, which is Augusta, and they literally it was like I was reaching into my mind and pulling out files that had been there for for long periods of time. Some of the stories, there were several stories that came to me in a matter of minutes. One uh, story in chapter 18 came to me in about five minutes while I was taking a shower. It was literally given to me. Um, So I do not look at myself as an author. I look at myself more as a messenger. And I feel like that the stories that have been given to me, uh, God has been used the Holy Spirit to pour the stories through me. And I'm just a vessel. I do, uh, you know, I'm taking my life experiences and taking the messages that he has given me and put them into a book. And I'm, I'm, so I, I give God the glory on that. So you mentioned two things right there that I know everyone's going to be interested in. Um, well, more than two things, but two, two things that grabbed my attention. One was Augusta Golf Course, and I've never been there. I've watched the Masters. Is it as beautiful in person as it looks on TV? Yes. Uh, chapter one of my book is titled Augusta, and, and the reason it's uh, the first chapter is because that's where I was born. And uh, as a young child, um, as a teen, I guess I was about 10 or 11 years of age, I got a chance to go to a practice round and, and see uh, Augusta. And it is the most beautiful uh, greenest grass I've ever seen in my life. I've never seen a more immaculate uh, facility, and uh, I consider it to be the most beautiful golf course in the world. And I realize that the Pebble Beach and there's a lot of other golf courses, but for my eye, I love the rolling hills. I love the pine needles. Uh, to me, it's, it's, the, it's what a golf course should look like. So the other thing you mentioned was were some famous golfers. So tell us, I'm, I'm dying to hear a little bit about, I saw a list of some of the people that you've worked with, which is pretty amazing. But I'm, I'm dying to hear some stories about these famous guys. 
Well, I've got um, some great stories. One is about Tiger Woods, and it's uh, that chapter is uh, chapter seven, which is it's really about work ethic, and and it's about his work ethic. And I got a chance to be around that at Grand Cypress. I saw him the day after he won the the uh, U.S. Open at Bethpage Black, and he was filming a commercial, and I was uh, actually setting up for a lesson. And he came out on the tee, and I'm not lying, it was 7.30 in the morning, and he started hitting golf balls. This is the day after he won the U.S. Open. And I thought to myself, if I had just won the U.S. Open, I would be probably coming in from partying all night, honestly. Uh, I would have been celebrating. I would not have been hitting golf balls the next day. I could not believe it. And and that just, no matter what you want to say about Tiger and where he is in his, his life and where he is in his game and everything, you cannot deny his work ethic. The man has worked at it very, you know, pretty much his whole life. So that's a great story in there. Uh, I didn't tell all of it, but I'll let the readers read that. There's there's a great story about Arnold Palmer, who was my father's uh, uh, childhood idol, or his idol, and that's uh, a, a great story. And with him passing this year, um, this past year at least, uh, that's that's a story that now has even more significance to me in the book. Uh, I've got a great story about Seve Ballesteros. I got to spend three days watching Seve Ballesteros take golf lessons, and it was unbelievable. I've never seen a, a man that could could hit a driver everywhere. I mean, the ball was going everywhere, and then you would turn around and watch him putt, and he was the most beautiful putter I've ever seen, and his short game was phenomenal. Another man that we've lost, uh, you know, unfortunately. Um, the Probably my favorite of all the, the big hitters uh, golf stories um, is, is the one of Payne Stewart. Payne Stewart was like a spiritual beacon for me. He actually, uh, watching him in Hilton Head as a, a, a college intern, I just come out of graduate from college, um, I got a chance to watch him, and he actually got me back into golf. Um, and that, that story is one of my favorites because it really shows how God can kind of work, use people uh, in your life to guide you and, and take you from destination to destination. Um, there's stories about Paul Lazinger, um, uh, just uh, Phil Rogers, who's my mentor, who's a, who won six times on the PGA Tour, came in second place in the British Open. Uh, he's another uh, great story. And then I've got stories about guys like Roy Williams and Brad Johnson and Brad Doherty, guys that I grew up with uh, and played, played with uh, that are in the book that give it a good Western North Carolina local feel. Out of all those people, and they're all they're all great golfers, obviously. Who just personally um, is the nicest guy you met? I mean, the the most interesting, just personable guy. That's a great question. Um, I, I think that you know, if you talk about what they what, the nicest guy. Like, if I look at a guy like Payne Stewart, Payne Stewart, what I respected most about him was his Christian faith. But he wasn't the most just outgoing person that you would ever see. Seve was very, very personable and very, uh, uh, very entertaining to be around and, 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 was, and was like a showman. Um, I would have to say of all the, uh, the people that I know in there, I would say Brad Johnson is probably at the top of the list. Um, and Phil Rogers is as my mentor uh, has meant so much to me in my career. But that's a that's a really really good question. I, I I'd say you know Paul Lazinger would be up there as well. He was extremely nice uh, and gracious when 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 being around him. And um, 
you know, he walked, he would walk into the shop and uh, shake everyone's hand. Um, a guy that I did not write about, about in the book who was extremely nice, one of the nicest people I've ever met, is Steve Stricker. Uh, he practiced at Grand Cypress, and he actually walked into the shop and thanked everyone and shook their hands. And I thought that was just a lot of class. Uh, another guy that's not in the book but is extremely nice, was nice, is Phil Mickelson. Uh, Phil Mickelson came out to, to Grand Cypress to practice, and he took the time to write a thank you letter and send it to my boss. Uh, t- to me, that, that says a lot about him. You know, I remember when Phil Nicholson, Mickelson won the Masters. I remember something really different about him, just watching him on TV. Because usually you see the golfers, they're in the middle of this, there's crowds all around, and they are so focused, they're not watching the crowd. They're just laser-focused on their game and on the course. Phil was walking down the course, looking around, looking at the crowds, I said at the time, it was several holes to go, and he was a little behind, that this guy's going to win this thing. He, I never saw anyone so in the moment as, as he was. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yes. I mean, when he won, when he won the, the Masters uh, for the first time, it was, it was more of a relief, I think, for, for uh, the golf fans than anything because he had been so close. And whether he had something crazy go and he'd lose the tournament or he would do something stupid and lose the tournament, um, it was just more of a relief from a golf fan standpoint. I'm a huge Phil Mickelson fan. And the reason that I'm a huge Phil Mickelson fan is because it's like watching – uh, a mini series uh, when he plays golf. I mean, the highs and the lows, the ups and downs, the shots he hits, and he has no fear. He tries to hit every shot out there. So I absolutely, um, I wasn't taking it from me. I've always felt like that he's he's focused and he's in the moment. I, I don't feel like he ever gets out of that. But sometimes he tries sh- shots that you just go, I can't believe he's going to try to try to do this. And, he, and most of the time he pulls it off. The shot he hit on number 13 at Augusta when he was in the pine needles and he hits that ball uh, out and knocks it like five feet from the hole. That was one of the most phenomenal shots I've ever seen in my life because the whole time I'm literally yelling at the television, don't hit this shot, don't hit this shot, and he did it. So let me ask you, I, I got a couple, I got a million questions, so we won't take up too much time with them, but just technical questions about golf. I mean, you've done a lot of teaching. What is it for amateurs like me, and I'm really not a good amateur at all, but for, what, what is the most common kind of mistake you see us amateurs making? Well, it all starts with the grip. I mean, usually the I've always said the people that have bad golf swings usually have bad grips. And uh, very rarely, I've never seen someone with a really good grip have a really bad golf swing. You build your golf swing around the grip. And then from there, your ball position alignment. The biggest mistake I see a lot of teachers make is they spend way too much time working on alignment. Working on someone's alignment is not going to do them any good unless they you can fix their grip and their golf swing. Uh, because if they're a slicer, they're going to aim left. Um, so, um, you know, I think the most common thing would be in the grip. The second thing I see and I really pay, uh, really take a lot of time to, to look at as a teacher is going to be the uh, ball position, where you play the ball relative to your feet. Because the, that's where the bottom of the swing is. And so you've got to make sure that you've got the ball in the right spot. So if you have a good grip and a good ball position, that's why, you know, if you get a kid to, to learn a grip in a ball position, he's got 90% of the problems taken care of right off the bat. 
And here, I, I got a kind of a psychological sort of question about golf, too. Fundamentally, what limits our precision? If you think, let, let's say, let's just pick an example. Like, you're, you're, you're on the green, you're 12 feet from the hole. You're going to make the putt what percentage of the time? A tour player from, from 12 feet is going to make, let's see, that's going to be somewhere in the maybe 15% range, 10, 15% range. Okay, so let's say 15%. What keeps it from being 20% really fundamentally? Well, it's, it's not, um, it, you know, first of all, it's very difficult. It's a very difficult game. Um, but, you know, I think if you look at stats in golf, from three feet, they make about 90%. These are tour players now, okay? They, make, they don't make every three-footer. From four feet, it goes to 80. From five feet, it goes down to 70. From six feet, it goes down to 60. Um, so outside of six feet, you know, the numbers just start going. When you start getting 10 feet, the, the odds of them making a 10-footer and a 20-footer are about the same. Okay, so it's not very. Di- the difference is tour players don't three putt. Okay, that's the difference. It's not the one putts; it's the three putts. You know, because a lot of times you'll go out there, and a lot of amateurs will have just as many one putts as a tour player. But the problem is, is they'll have all the three and four and five putts, and so that's what runs their totals up. So, one putting is great. We all want to try to one putt. The key is is learning to to get the speed down so that you two putt. And then if you, you know, if, you, if I got the speed down, it's like pitching horseshoes or nowadays it's cornhole. Everybody throws corn. The key thing is getting it to go the right distance, you know. And if you get the putt to go the right distance, you're going to eliminate the three putts. Then every time you get a one putt, you hold on to that sucker. You hold on to that. So if I chip it up to the hole two inches from the cup and I tap it in, that's a one putt. I hold on to that. I don't want to lose it. The only way I can lose it is if I three-putt. Got it. I want to go back now. You, I, I saw in the book, I saw in the description of the book, and you mentioned this this dream you had that really got this whole thing started. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that right now? Sure, I'd love to. Um, this is where um, – this was a, a very difficult thing for me to write at first – because when I wrote it, I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, people are going to think I'm crazy. And uh, But when I wrote it, it was actually um, therapeutic. Uh, when I was a, in high school, I was a sophomore in high school. I had a supernatural experience. I was extremely sick with bronchitis. I went to bed, and uh, in the early morning hours, I started um, just having this dream um, where I actually heard the audible voice of God. And... Um, the thing that I'll, I'll always remember is it sounded, it would be like standing in a field and you have mountains all around you and you hear thunder in the, in the distance and it's rumbling. And then all of a sudden you hear a crack of thunder and it was that kind of, of, of uh, buildup. It went from a slow tone to a loud uh, right over my head. And I could hear, uh, he said, I am the alpha, I am the omega, I'm the beginning and I'm the end. I heard angels singing. Um, I I saw pictures of from my um, from people who had died that I knew, uh, and they were flashing before my very eyes. 
Um, and then um, I heard a voice, an angelic voice, say that this light, and, and my dream was actually in black and white, said this light was sent to you by. And I saw a picture of a man uh, from, looked like the Civil War era. era. And the, the dream went from black and white, immediately turned to color. And all of a sudden, I had this flash of light that came up to me. I knew exactly who it was. I knew it was Jesus. I raised my hands in, in the air, and I, and I said, uh, you know, please take me. And he said, it's not your time. He kept telling me, it's not your time. You have much work to do. And so what was amazing about this dream is, is, is when I left or when I woke up from the dream, uh, I was completely healed. He healed me in that dream. I completely was healed. And, um, you know, I didn't tell everything about the dream. And I think, you know, I want the reader to actually go through it and experience that. But that that was what was a, the miracle of it is I, I felt my soul come out of my body and then go back into my body. Uh, so I know what it feels like to actually float. Uh, it, I was literally floating over my bed, went back into my body, and then I was healed. And I woke up. And I didn't know what to do with the dream. I thought, my gosh, people are going to think I'm crazy. I ran up the steps. I told my parents. I went to my church. I talked to my pastor. I don't think he believed me. Uh, so it just, uh, it, it was something I was like, well, this is something I'm just going to bury. And I'm not going to, what am I going to do with this? I'm a sophomore in high school. And that dream has been with me uh, till this very day. Um, but it, it was basically uh, a seed that, that God was planting into my early childhood uh, or in teenage years, uh, I wasn't ready to handle something like that. I wasn't ready to go out into, in front of the world and say, you know, this is how God has influenced my life. This is how the Holy Spirit has influenced my life. This is how Jesus Christ has influenced my life. Now I am ready. I had to live 50 years of my life. I'm 50 now, so I've had to live another 40 years or so of my life to get the life experiences to, to shape the book. Uh, I could have never done this when I was younger. So um, it was an amazing experience, and it was the first chapter I wrote, chapter 17. And it is the most important um, part of the book in my fact, in my mind because it adds the Christian sizzle to the book. It adds this is the substance of what makes this a, a Christian book. Uh, and in my mind, it was almost like a miracle. John, that's an amazing story. It's easy. I can just watch you. Tell that story, and I can tell that you're, it's just as clear in your mind today as it, when it happened, and it's easy to see why that inspired you. Well, I want to I wish you the very best of luck with this book and everything else you do. And uh, before, I, before we go, I want you to tell people how they can keep track of you. You got a website or anything? Yes, my, uh, my website is johndeckergolf.com. Um, and I'm also on Facebook, um, and I spell my name just so you know. It's J O N JohnDeckerGolf.com, um, and I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook, um, and also um, you know the book itself is uh, available in eBooks now. Uh, you can get it at Barnes and Noble's websites. It's available on Amazon as well. Uh, I've got it in the Barnes and Noble all through through uh, Western North Carolina. I got them Charlotte and, and Raleigh, Atlanta, and now we're getting down in South Carolina and Florida as well. So, um, you know, uh, hopefully, um, you know, you'll get a chance to to uh, if if not, if you want to go on the website and and uh, and look at some of the the quotes and some of the reviews. There's there's a section on my website that is specifically for the book that'll give you a little bit more information as well. 
Thanks a lot, John. Thanks for listening, and thanks again to John Decker and the staff at Barnes & Noble Bookstore at Biltmore Park. To hear other episodes or subscribe to our podcast, you can visit our website at themiddleoftheair.com. See you next time.